word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the KJZZ Studios in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, it's nearly Halloween and also nearly NaNoWriMo. We welcome back a guest from last year's competition. Yeah, I can't wait. I actually plotted more than I usually do. I want to write a sequel. Plus, we'll catch up with another nano veteran who's not fond of planning in what's often known as Plottober. I think the heart of us comes out when we are unconsciously just plowing through 50,000 words of stuff. Finally, we're joined by a recent Cronkite graduate, a nano veteran, who's branching out into a new genre this go-around. I think the secret is just to work on something that really makes you happy and you're really deeply interested in, because if you're not interested in it, you probably won't finish it. But first, fellow podcaster Pamela Rogers, who has a long connection to the Valley, hosts a show called Buttons and Figs. It's a fun literacy program for kids, parents, educators, librarians, and anyone who values wordplay. One of the popular attributes of the show is song. And since it's nearly Halloween, Rogers has released this seasonal tune. It was just a normal day, a day like any other. I was tagging along, running errands with my mother. We stopped by the store for eggs, milk, and butter. But when I walked through the door, my heart began to flutter. I couldn't believe my eyes. They darted this way and that. And everywhere I looked, there was orange and black and cats and bats and scary witches with hats. Cobwebs, the undead, tons of orange and black. Orange and black and black and orange. And you know what this all means. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It's Halloween. Halloween is on my mind every day of the year. My mom always says, cool it, wait until the season's here. But now it's here, the best time of the year. A night to dress up, paint my face, and feel and give out fear. Kids dress up as whatever they want to be. They go door to door trick or treating and get tons of candy free. The orange of jack o' lanterns and the light that glows inside. The black of witches' hats and caps and bats flying through the sky. And the candy, oh, the candy. Snickers, gummies, Kit Kats, Twix, MMs, Butterfingers, but not all at once. Relax.
You can find out more about Pamela Rogers and Buttons and Figs on our website, word.kjzz.org. Well, for most of us, November means many things, like Thanksgiving, putting up a Christmas tree, maybe, or no longer leaving the valley every weekend to get out of the heat. But for many fiction writers, November means NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, 50,000 words in a month. Last year, we covered it enthusiastically, and we're happy to welcome back Teresa Monroe. We talked to her last November during NaNo. She's expanding on last year's challenge and hopes to complete a sequel to it this year. I began our discussion, though, by asking how she's coping with the pandemic. Yeah, it's really getting to me. I'm a homebody to begin with, but it's even beginning to bother me now. Yeah, same here. I mean, there's only so much home you can do. I, I'm like that as well, but this has taken being a homebody to a whole new level. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't know what extroverts do. I guess they go out and hope they don't get sick or something. How many years now have you been doing NaNoWriMo? This is my 13th. Wow, that's outstanding. I know last year when we talked, and welcome back, by the way, you were unsure about getting something published. I'm still not sure if I'm going to submit it to agents. I'm getting it ready and the um, query letter and synopsis and everything like that but publishing has really taken a big hit with the uh pandemic and it's really changed even since we talked last year so i think my chances are maybe not good worse than usual so i don't know i'm not very optimistic about it and since i'm kind of up there in age (laughs) you know i don't know how much time i want to put into uh the query process As you mentioned, publishing has changed, even for folks who are trying to kind of make a living at it. And some people have made a living starting with NaNoWriMo. Right. Maybe you could just briefly talk about some of the things that you have noticed that have changed in the publishing world due to the pandemic. I think agents are being more selective and sticky more with what they know. I just entered my um, book, I'm finishing a polishing up now, Killing Julie, in an um, agent pitch um, project with my women's fiction group. They gather agents and they, the association coaches you in coming up with a 50-word pitch. And then you post like your first 500 words, which isn't very much out of a you know 90,000-word novel. And you post it and the 15 agents looked at it. And the only um, I got any requests from agents to see were pretty much the same kind of women's fiction. Uh, mine is 
It's women's fiction with romance and suspense elements in it. Um, I didn't get any agent love, which I kind of didn't expect. It's good practice, but it's at the same time kind of the same old, same old, and you know, sticking with what they know and not really wanting to venture out into something that could be different because, after all, they want to sell books, and publishers right. want to sell books. Of course. So. Now, this is Plottober. Tell me what you've been working on this month, and what is the plot and genre of the piece that you'll be gearing up to write here very soon, at, starting at the 1st of November? Yeah, I can't wait. Um, I actually plotted more than I usually do. I want to write a sequel for this book, Killing Julie, called Reviving Julie. And so um, I sort of started it when I was editing it up the first time. I'm taking what I couldn't use from the end because it just made the end too long and too far away from the climax. So I'm going to start off with that. So it will be the most uh, plotting I have ever done. And do you think that that's partially because of the pandemic and it's just more time inside, right? Um, Yeah, maybe. And plus, I'm kind of tired of taking, um, you know, all these pieces of a novel that I put together and having to throw a lot of them out. I'm trying to come up with a more direct system to write. So because something worked the last time doesn't mean it's going to work for you this time. Yeah. And of course, we have lingo that's attached to nano. People often fall into one of a few categories, which are pantsers, which fly by the seat of their pants. Also, there's a combination, right, of people who plan hard and then also fly by the seat of their pants, which are plantsters, right? Yeah, pantsers. And (laughs) plotters are the ones who have everything plotted out, outlined. I, I don't know how they do it. I don't either. And first of all, I'm not sure that I could ever make the finish line. I've only written one novel in my life, and it was years and years and years ago. It's not something that I ever took to development. I'm more of a poetry person myself and short fiction. Uh Maybe you can tell me a little bit more about this central character, which, as you say, you're looking at writing a sequel. The central character is a woman named Julie She used to be a costume designer in Hollywood, and she got involved with a psychopathic guy, her lover, and she ended up having to leave her career there. She landed in Phoenix, where she opened a dress shop. Um, She custom-makes dresses for well-heeled women, as they put it. But she gets sick. She finds out she has a kind of leukemia, which... When I started writing this, I was diagnosed with the same kind of leukemia, chronic myeloid leukemia. And uh, fortunately for me, I found it early. Julie didn't. So it's really complicated for her. And she meets uh, a guy she worked with on a movie, comes back, walks into her shop one Friday evening, and they kind of hit it off. And through him, she accidentally comes in contact with her ex-lover. And that's when her life really starts going downhill. And so the story is about the complications and the way this ex-lover really tried to do her in. And somewhere in there, she determines that if he's going to kill her, she's going to take him with her. And so that happens. And then the second book is about how she recovers from that and all the aspects of being a victim of crime and the personal nature of the crime. But I want to make it realistic enough so that I want to respect people who have been through sexual trauma 
and I want to make it real enough so that people take me seriously as a writer and not as somebody who just throws words on a page. Well, Teresa Monroe, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word, talking about what you're plotting out and this sequel that sounds just really amazing. And of course, we are real people. We write from real life, even though this is fiction. And I'm so terribly sorry to hear about your leukemia, but I'm so glad as well that you found it early. Thank you so much for coming back to Word and best of luck on NaNoWriMo this year. Please take care. Well, thanks for having me back. You take care, too. You can find out more about Teresa Monroe at our website, word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You can get a lot of things delivered these days, and now that includes the latest Arizona news from KJZZ's Sun Up podcast. I'm Phil Latzman. Everything you need to know to start each day delivered to you in this handy little podcast Go to KJZZ.org or wherever you get your podcasts and download KJZZ Sun Up today. If you're feeling a little too distant from your community, the KJZZ mobile app is a great way to stay connected. Stream the station, read the latest Arizona news, or browse for a podcast. Let us help you stay connected on the KJZZ mobile app. It's free in Google Play and the App Store. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Nano-enthusiast and writer Kendall Pack is a transplant to the Valley from Utah. He joined me recently to talk about his plans, or lack thereof, this November, and how much leisure he and others take with the annual event. It's interesting because you talk about some people take some leisure with it. Some people, they really lock in that, you know, they'll, they post in the Facebook groups and they'll say, I wrote 10,000 words today, you know, just a ridiculous amount of words. I tend to fall into the category of what they call pantsers, which is that we, we write by the seat of our pants because there's no plan in advance. There's no outline. A lot of people, they take all of October to do a full outline and kind of some pre-writing and some research and all this other stuff. But for me, it's, it's literally, you know, I wake up November 1st and I say, oh yeah, it's NaNoWriMo. And, and without fail, Every year I forget pretty much until, you know, Halloween night. I'm like, oh yeah, NaNoWriMo's tomorrow. <laughs> I should probably, I should probably do something. So I just launch into it. And, uh, and, and by the end of the month, I usually have at least half of a book. That's great. You mentioned in terms of using the month of October for plotting out your stories, they actually refer to it as Plottober. Last year, of course, there were tons of in-person meetings uh, around the state, certainly around the nation, but those have all moved to virtual events. Of course, we're talking virtually. Normally, Mm -hmm. I would have folks who are in this area come into studio, but that's just not possible. And so I appreciate you being available in a medium that uh, probably is tiresome for a lot of people, especially teachers like yourself. (laughs) As a teacher, of course, you've got to be prepared. You've got to do lesson plans, that kind of thing. What is it about the the difference in your writing approach, at least for Nano and being a pantser who flies by the seat of their pants that you like? I've done improv for about 10 years and that's, that's one of my favorite mediums. Oh, wow. Um, of, of performance and, and kind of creativity. And what I like about both of those forms is I, I don't see it as a final product. I certainly don't think that, you know, an improvised novel is a, is going to end up perfect. But what I do find is that I can explore some different avenues that I never would have discovered before. If I sit there and I plot the whole thing out and I say, this is exactly how it's going to go. 
I think there's less opportunity for that sort of creative thinking. And even sure. in teaching, when I go and I sit down in an English classroom and I say, all right, I'm, what am I going to plot out for the week? I try not to be too restrictive on, you know, we're going to do this assignment and this assignment. My poor first period kids, you know, they're, uh, they're just beholden to just random whims, you know, it's just, ah, well, what if we did this assignment? And I just make up assignments on the fly and I, I've gotten fairly good at it. I will say there's still an assignment here or there that is just like total nonsense. And the next day I have to say like, all right, let's clarify. It didn't I've, work. I've, I've worked through it. <laughs> let's make it happen. But I think that's good for the students too, to kind of see. And besides, usually with these 50,000 word novels, they're not going to end up in perfect condition by the end of November. Sure. So it, this frees me up to say, all right, I'm going to explore maybe all these kind of disparate plot points. And then when I return to the novel, I can either find a way to connect them or I can separate out chunks and say, well, now this is kind of a, a starter plot for another story. Uh, or, or, you know, this is something interesting that I could turn into a short story. Right. Uh, and, and so I can kind of either pick it apart or I can find ways to tie all that stuff in together in, in some fun, interesting ways. And it's not quite like being a pantser sort of follows the adage of Hemingway, which I believe was right drunk, edit sober. Um, <laughs> but uh, maybe a little bit of channeling there. And you bring up a good point in terms of creative writing. I mean, being creative on a schedule can be very difficult for some people. I have always found that the case. And you draw inspiration at all times of the day. I have always been fascinated by people who can dedicate, I don't know, say four hours out of their morning. They get up exactly at six o'clock by uh -huh. 6.30. They've had their coffee and bagel and whatever. And then they're just on it and they stay on it for that full four hours. I'm like you. Uh, it's not my writing process as well. <laughs> what types of genres have you dabbled in in past NaNoWriMo's? I always go back to uh, what David Mitchell, the guy who wrote um, Cloud Atlas and the Bone Clocks. I always go yes. back to an interview that he gave. He says, the novel doesn't care what it is, right? And, and so when I, start a, when I start a novel, it, it can really become anything. For example, a couple of years ago, I started writing one that was a detective novel, um, and then it morphed into this time travel thing. And then it also had this element of kind of clandestine government agency. It was all over the place, and it wasn't something I would typically write, but exploring those genres is interesting to me. And I've done the literary approach, and I've done the, the science fiction approach and these different things. But what I find is if I just start with a character or a scene or something like that, it's going to turn into something that I can really sink my teeth into. And I really do love um, just kind of exploring whatever genre uh, these characters find themselves in. One of the exercises that I learned in terms of preparing characters came from an acting class, actually, in college. And we had to do these very detailed, what I guess I would call character sketches, to sort of know who your character is. And I mean, it was essentially a list of questions that you filled in the blanks, like, what is this person's favorite food? Do they drive a car? How old are they? And then, you know, deeper kinds of sort of like psychological things, like what motivates this person? Do you spend any amount of time dealing with those kinds of things in your characterization? Or do you, again, sort of fly by the seat of your pants on that one? 
there will be days that I kind of stop and say, okay, this character who I've been writing is maybe a little underdefined. And so I will ask some of those questions. What I like to do, especially early on with characters, is I'll say, here's a new character I really like him. I've given him a name. I've given him some descriptors. I'm going to drop them in a situation that goes against, you know, some uh, belief they have or or stresses them out, even though maybe they're a character who is very put together. And I'm just going to see how they react. I've done those similar exercises. I think that uh, that you know, asking yourself questions about who this character is is really great. And I think it's equally good to just drop a character into a scene and say, what does this character do when they're up against a wall? What does this character do when they run into someone that they haven't seen in 10 years? What does this character do when they go into the coffee shop and they order uh, the, the same thing they order every day and uh, it's out? Right. So uh, it's just opportunities to discover um, that character's reaction in the moment that I think is it's what I enjoy. And it's kind of what brings me back to the desk in the morning to say I'm going to write because I'm excited to find out who this character is. I know in our correspondence, you mentioned that you keep little notebooks. I'm a big fan of doing that myself. I have dozens of them. Other folks keep uh, larger journals. They write on napkins and the backs of envelopes and maybe have a shoebox full of little snippets. Uh, I've done that many times, and that's where I've gotten a lot of great haiku from. They could actually be different thoughts from multiple weeks, and then maybe I'll pull out that shoebox and look for inspiration and put some stuff together, kind of like a puzzle, if you will. How helpful do you find that as it applies to writing for NaNoWriMo, using that well of material that you, you might have in journals, for instance? It does a couple of things for me, writing down ideas in little notebooks and on sticky notes and one thing it does is it obviously it's an opportunity for character exploration. I can sit down and say on just this sticky note, I'm going to write down a scene with this character, right? Or just what they think about blank. And uh, then I do that and I slap that on my desk. And then when I'm writing the next day, if I want to check in with the character, I can look at that. And even if I don't use that scene for the novel, that's a moment from that character's life. And I can say, that's how they would react in that moment. So then how would they react in this moment? And then these little notebooks that I keep, you know, I've, I've found that I can, I can stuff about uh, 17,000 words in them. And so that's a really solid starter for a project. And those notebooks are great because uh, if, if, I, if I start from the beginning and just tell myself, it doesn't matter what's in the book, as long as you get to the end, Again, I'm discovering some really interesting stuff. And so when it comes to actually sitting down for NaNoWriMo, I still get the thrill of kind of flying by the seat of my pants. But I also get, here's this thing. Now I can type it up. And as I go, I can discover new avenues and new connections. And I'm thinking ahead to the end of that little piece that I have. And I'm thinking about the connections that I need to go back and fill in. And so it becomes almost a second draft right Right. when I type it up. So that's been nice. You also included a quote that I assume is part of your signature line. It's a quote by Flannery O'Connor that says, the basis of art is truth, both in matter and in mode. I'm wondering, first of all, where that quote comes from and how it may relate to you in your own writing. Flannery O'Connor, I read Wise Blood in college and I was so I was kicking myself for not reading her much earlier. I love her work. And, and that quote comes from uh, an essay that she wrote. She was always mixing 
her religion. She was Catholic, very Catholic. And she was always mixing that and her writing and, and talking about kind of the intersection of them, as well as how they kind of would butt heads to the point where a lot of like Catholic leadership would say, don't read these books, you know, they're right. They're salacious. And she'd say, well, you know what? The nice thing is if you're going to tell people not to read it, then I can write it without worrying about offending people because they won't read it. So I just like her approach to thinking about art uh, and it being truth. I have another quote from her that I give to my high school students, which is that the truth doesn't change according to your ability to stomach it. And so I think oh, when we wow. when we write, we discover truths about ourselves. And then when we rewrite, we're looking for ways in which we can deliver that truth to an audience in a way that they're, even if they're not going to accept it, they can at least nod their heads and say, I, I can see how this character got there. And so that's always in the back of my mind is thinking, this isn't just about entertainment. It's not just about writing out my fantasy of what life could have been sure. or what I wish I could do if I quit my job or something like that. And instead of thinking about what are those essential truths that drive me day after day? Yes. I'm fond of quoting another adage, which is adversity introduces a person to themselves. I think writing mm -hmm. does that for many people as well. Is there anything maybe that you have learned about yourself by participating in NaNoWriMo that you could share with others? participation in a project like this first of all writing is so it's so you're by yourself it's it's one of these things where you're just you're working by yourself you don't know if anyone's going to care you don't know if anyone's going to publish it and suddenly you have a month where first of all you're working very hard at it you're focused at it and second of all you're hearing other people saying kind of you know their discoveries and, and things they're learning about characters so i think it does a couple of things for writers i think it opens up the community so that we understand other people are also gaining these insights and, and, and learning these things about themselves. And also just like having a great time finding characters, creating things, running into the same issues that I am. And I, I think that drives uh, people to complete it. And then I think the other thing uh, is that I always come out the other end of NaNoWriMo having learned something about myself that I didn't realize before, you know, and usually it's, I look back at the project and I say, this character went a, a completely different direction than I thought he was going to. And I said, you know, and, and often these characters are, are extensions of ourselves. And so then I look at it and I, I think, you know, my view of who I am maybe is a little bit skewed. And this has kind of opened up some new understanding of my fears and my interests and things like that. The novel that I wrote last year started out as just this like really stupid, over the top, action uh, <laughs> novel, just because I was like, I'm just going to do something silly this year. It's going to be ridiculous. I'm just going to jump into it. I'm just going to have fun with it. Just going to blow off some steam for a month. But then by the end of it, it became, I mean, it was still silly and over the top and ridiculous, but it became this story about this guy who just feels like he's outgrown himself in many ways. And he also is feeling like he's missed out on a lot of things in life, mostly connection with other people. And then by the end, he realizes that connection is there with this daughter that he didn't realize he had. And obviously in the novel, it, it sounds very serious. In the novel, it's because of all these intricate James Bond-esque plots by supervillains to, you know, steal his daughter from him. But anyway, in all this ridiculousness, there is this heart of this character realizing that he does have humanity still, and he, he can capture that by expressing love for another person. And I looked at that and I, I thought, 
I never expected that to come out of me because I didn't think that I thought about these things, but it just comes out. I think the heart of us comes out when we are unconsciously just plowing through 50,000 words of stuff. Very well said. Kendall Pack, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking about your past experiences with NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, 50,000 words in a month, and good luck this year. Thanks, Tom. You can find out more about Kendall Pack on our website, word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Some people think that smart speakers are a futuristic surveillance device straight out of George Orwell, constantly monitoring you as you engage in your most private actions and conversations. Well, they are. But did you know they're also a radio? That's right. You can ask your smart speaker to play NPR to hear your local station and all your favorite NPR shows. And it will. It will also report you to the central ministry. But why not enjoy yourself while you still can? You're getting into the swing of things. A new school routine for the kids and your morning commute has turned into a morning workout. And KJZZ is right there with you, keeping you connected with the day's news. Now more than ever, you need to know what's going on with the pandemic, with elections, and everything that matters. Trust KJZZ as your source for all the things you need to know. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Quinlan Shaughnessy is a recent graduate of the Cronkite School of Journalism at ASU. She's a longtime nano fan and practitioner. I began our discussion by asking about her writing process. Some Octobers are really busy. I do a lot of plotting. I have plotted whole books before, but usually only after I write them for some reason. I write the draft and then I make sure of all the stuff I want to say. But um, this year has been really low key. I have like come up with a few titles. I like announce the novel on the main NaNoWriMo site. And I usually make like a, a fun cover in Canva and just maybe a Pinterest board and gives me something, some ideas and a vibe to work off of. But I usually right. don't strongly plot in October. You mentioned Pinterest and I saw that technique practice of all places at a student writing conference at a uh, school here in the Valley. And I had never seen that tactic practiced before. And they did a whole workshop on it. And it was so cool because it was a conference geared specifically for their age. And it was all Arizona-based authors that came in and did, I think, four workshops. But one of the people talked about making a Pinterest board. And essentially what it is is kind of like a collage of photos. And maybe you're trying to build character, for instance. And so you grab all of these pictures online as to what this character might look like. And then you use that for inspiration. Is that kind of the thing that you do? Absolutely. And I have a board for usually every story. And then, but that's usually not enough. So I have the story for all the general aesthetics, maybe the houses or the the setting or something like that. Pinterest has this great new feature now where you can have categories within the main boards. So in each main board, you can have this character and then like the antagonist, and then you can have all the pins and the face claims and aesthetics for each character. So you can go crazy with your organization. And it's almost, to me, kind of like a storyboarding for a film would be. Yeah, it's really helpful for writers who either are screenwriters or they just think in more visual terms. And that's me. It's like I have to know what somebody looks like before I can really write them effectively. So it helps. 
And you bring up a great point, too, about the way people learn and and maybe think, and that is visual learners, auditory learners, some combination of the two, kinesthetic learners, people learn by tactile, by touch, Mm -hmm. uh, some mixture of all of those kinds of things. I'm a very auditory learner myself, (laughs) and one of the things that I used to do back in the days when they had micro cassette recorders uh, was actually take that into public spaces and you just put it down on a table and record stuff. I mean, I wanted it to be there in mm-hmm. full sight so people would see, not that they necessarily cared, <laughs> but it was great for capturing real dialogue. And I found oftentimes I would lift frequently verbatim from multiple conversations to put directly into a piece that I was working on. I had an assignment like that for, I think it was just like an English 101 class or something. But I took the recorder to my chorus at the time, and it was amazing, just these crazy conversations I heard between these teenagers. And it just tells you how real people talk and sometimes just little quirks that you can't put in the writing because nobody wants to hear a thousand false starts. But it is, <laughs> it is really interesting to figure out like the rhythm of how people talk. And we've talked here now a little bit about plot and building character. I want to talk genre. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite genre? I have written, goodness, over these 10 years, it's been mostly just exploring different genres, but I did finally settle on, uh, I really love historical fiction. It's what I like to watch on TV and read, and I like biographies. So that's what I've been getting into the most lately. What is it about historical fiction, maybe from a creative standpoint, that you're attracted to? Well, for one thing, good historical fiction is actually in some ways more challenging than any other genre. You have to make it sound pretty natural. So when you have really good historical fiction, it's it can transport you in a way that nothing else can because it's almost like a fantasy because we don't live that way anymore. But it's not fantasy because it's so real. So it's like you get to live both in the real world and not your real world. And you get to see uh, like the past and how it has brought you to this point and how we've all been basically the same. And that's why I love when historical fiction doesn't use a whole lot of anachronisms. Like they really they really research because if you know a lot about the period, you don't have to insert like our current modern attitudes and ways of talking into the past um, oh, because point. there's just no need. Right. Um, writer, writers who don't do a ton of research um, can do that. I know I have, but it's so much better if you do more research. Absolutely. You know, Daniel Day-Lewis, before he left acting, as far as I know, he's not doing it anymore. But of course, (laughs) he won three Academy Awards and the last one, I believe, for Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And I remember an interview with Sally Field, who was equally as wonderful. But Daniel Day-Lewis's transformation, and again, he's a method actor, into Lincoln was astonishing because I kept thinking to myself, how's an Irish guy going to play an American president? (laughs) (laughs) And that's not to make Irish folk out there angry. I have a piece of Irishness in my own Yeah, I mean, my name... And obviously yours as well. So, (laughs) But one of the things that Sally Field talked about was Daniel, because they were separated by an ocean, wanted to correspond. And he essentially said, 
we're going to correspond in the language of the day. Oh, wow. So that I can stay in character because, again, he's a method actor. So he's that dedicated to it. <laughs> so what you're talking about there with doing research is just fascinating to me. And I think you're right. There are good types of historical fiction and bad types of historical <laughs> fiction. It, bad can still be fun, but it's not quite as engaging to me. Right. So give me a little bit, if you can, as to the theme of what you might be working on for Nano. I have actually, in in true me form, I've skipped between different things as to what I'm going to do. I am thinking about writing a mystery series, which is my first one. I've never tried that before, but I've been watching a lot of old cop shows lately. I've been watching Cagney and Lacey. I don't know if you remember that one from the Absolutely. 80s. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, and I was just thinking of mysteries, um, cozy mysteries are really popular, like, you know, Murdoch mysteries and uh, Murder, She Wrote. I think it's interesting that uh, book sales have definitely gone up during the pandemic because people want something familiar, like that right. they can just sort of lose themselves in. Right. I was talking to a previous guest, Teresa Monroe, who's thinking about shopping one of her nano creations around. And she was saying, mm. you know, unfortunately... I kind of take some departures with standard genres, and it seems like agents are not as receptive to that, that they're looking for familiar territory mm -hmm. to sell books. I do know that reading is up. I mean, uh, the research is in, and because of the pandemic, people are buying and consuming more literature, audiobooks, of course, as well. But because we have so much more time at home, for instance, people are reading more or, if you will, listening to audiobooks, which is a form of reading in my mind. As far as nano, it's completely different in the creative sphere than what you have done in the past at Cronkite School of Journalism. And I wonder mm -hmm. how you play back and forth between those worlds. How difficult is it? That's a great question because um, it sometimes it's difficult to just like switch your brain between modes. Oh, yes. For sure. I find that when I'm at work, I have my work voice on. <laughs> and when I'm on Facebook or social media, that work voice also tends to carry because I write a lot of social media in the same kind of like quick, snappy, I try not to waste words keep it all pretty legible. Try not to the bury people. the lead. Exactly. But for writing, I, I'm not going to say I took a break from creative writing because it's, it's always in there, but I wasn't like actively working on a project for a few months while working on my internship. And when I came back to it, I realized that every sentence I was writing was extremely short. And it was like a staccato rhythm of sentences. I was like, I've turned into Hemingway. Something's terribly wrong. So um, <laughs> anyway, it, you know, it's not permanent. It's um, the more I write now, um, the more that I, I find my balance and I get my original writing voice back, but it's been fun to learn both methods. And yeah. I, I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful November will help me figure that out even, even more. Well, you're still battling with deadline pressure. And one of my editors months ago asked, because you have more time at home right now, do you find yourself spending more time creative writing? I said, you know, it's just, it's really a different part of the brain mm -hmm. and it's really hard to turn that on and turn it off. I mean, I still keep journals and I might doodle on an envelope and get a haiku out of it or something like that. I'm, I'm more of a poet than I am a fiction writer. And most oh, of the really? fiction that I've written is short in nature, short shorts, mm -hmm. short stories. But that's just my particular bag is poetry. 
one of the reasons why I wanted to start this show is to reach out and, and try and expand the offerings for folks who are in the creative sphere. Many of them, of course, have professions that are completely diametrical to writing, but they still Mm -hmm. find time to do things creatively. And so 30 days is not a lot when you're trying to bang out 50,000 words because that's the goal, but you've made it every single time. Are there tactics that you use to propel you through a day? Are you really set on a schedule like, hey, I'm going to write from 10 to noon and then from two to four, uh, and this is my daily word goal, for instance? That's a really good point. Um, NaNoWriMo is one of those things that, I mean, luckily just kind of came naturally to me. I actually started when I was 13 years old and you're not really doing anything else at 13. So you can sort of devote your whole brain to it. I'd started out with the Young Writers Program. I did 10,000 words in a month and then I moved it up the next year to 20,000. Then I moved it up the next year to 30,000. And by the fourth year I was doing it, I was up to the 50 and I've done the 50 ever since. And I did it through school. I did it through work, all of that. And I think the biggest thing I ever did was I just really liked what I was working on. There's really no other secret I have other than that because I would go days without writing. But then when I did finally have a chance to sit back down, I'd knock out 5,000 words in a day and keep my word count up. Because you're supposed to do what? Like 1,600 and. 67 words. I think that's exactly it, right? Yeah, I've calculated it enough times. Um, And um, so, you know, you don't have to write every day as long as you know you can catch up. I think the secret is just to work on something that really makes you happy and you're really deeply interested in because then you'll be excited to work on your story. If you're not interested in it, you probably won't finish it because you, you know, why? Especially now, why would you make yourself do something that you're not really into? So even if you don't think that it's like the best story of all time, you're going to be able to sell it to this publisher tomorrow. Just write what you want to write. Yeah, it's the passion that drives, and trust me, if the passion isn't there in writing it, uh, it's not going to be there for readers, and the most important reader is a prospective publisher if that is your goal. We should Mm -hmm. say that, of course, I would wager to say most people do not get into practicing nano to publish, but there are a lot of people whose careers have started out that way. So Quinlan, I understand that you have a short little piece, an excerpt from something that you've written, and it's kind of holiday-themed as we're close to the holiday. This is from my novel that I've been working on actually since 2015. It's about three Victorian witches, a grandmother, a daughter, and a granddaughter. And um, they're sort of Victorian intergenerational drama that they've been carrying on. Sounds fun. Um, Yeah, it's a lot of fun and quite dark sometimes, (laughs) um, as family can be. And so this is, yeah, a little bit (laughs) Halloween-themed, spooky for everybody. There was darkness, then the mist of the veil between the living and the dead, then all at once the light of a dozen candles sputtering above and around her. Her lungs convulsed in the damp midnight air as if they'd already forgotten how to breathe it. There was wood underneath her back, solid and evenly planed, but it wasn't part of a coffin. It was a simple table in a simple room, with a fire in the hearth and books stacked to the ceiling. She sat up and immediately realized that it was a mistake. Everything hurt. Her arms, legs, chest, head, even the very roots of her hair felt as if their only purpose was to cause her pain. But in the midst of the pain was a hand on her back. She was not alone. The man beside her gazed into her eyes with some flurry of awe and fear. She wasn't sure if it was for her or for himself. Don't get up, he said brusquely. I've worked on you too long to have it all ruined because you got impatient. 
What happened? She asked. Don't you remember? He replied. You were hanged. It all came rushing back. The rain in her eyes, the platform underneath her worn boots. Her mother and sister in the crowd beyond, watching her with eyes already haunted. But they didn't do a thing to stop it. Just stood there and stared as the noose yanked the life from her body. She risked the man's displeasure to reach up and touch her neck. The delicate flesh burned under her fingers like a fiery brand. But she was alive. How did you do it? She asked. He began to clean up the mess of instruments on the table. I'm not telling a convict my methods, he said. I'm not a convict, she hissed as forcefully as her feeble voice would allow. Then why were you on the scaffold, he asked. Anger kindled in her chest as she recalled the hellish events of the last two weeks. If she told him, he might not believe her. In fact, he might just return her to her family, kicking and screaming. Or he might be her only hope to reclaim the mangled pieces of her life. You could never tell with a necromancer. But in the end, he had done her one rather large favor, so surely she owed him the truth. My mother killed someone, she said, but I was the one who died for it. Oh, wow. Very, very strong narration in that. And a uh, great little piece. I appreciate you previewing what hopefully we'll read in longer form sometime soon. Yeah, I hope so. Quinlan Shaughnessy, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word. Best of luck on Nano this year. Thank you. You too, if you're doing it. You can find out more about Quinlan Shaughnessy on our website, word.kjzz.org. Portions of Word have been nominated for an Edward R. Murrow Award. We appreciate your continued support of the literary arts in Arizona and the region. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.